We're so excited for you to witness Prometheus's second investment idea event. Typically, these events have been off limits to the public. Hedge fund managers and investors would get together behind closed doors to talk about their favorite ideas, but this time, we're bringing it to you. Today, Prometheus founder and CEO Mike Wang are joined by LaCoya Capital Management's Jose Torres and Breen Asset Management's Andrew Cowan. Before we begin, a legal necessity. Opinions expressed in this podcast are meant for informational purposes only and should not be considered a recommendation or investment advice. All investments involve risk. Past performance does not guarantee future results. Securities products and services offered in the Prometheus marketplace are private placements only sold to accredited investors. Private placements, sometimes referred to as alternative investments, carry a high degree of risk, including the potential loss of your entire investment, and are not suitable for all investors. For a more detailed disclosure, including Prometheus's conflicts of interest, visit prometheusalts.com slash legals slash podcasts dash disclosure. All right, welcome to Prometheus's second Ideas Dinner event, where we bring together some of the world's best fund managers and professional investors to talk markets and their favorite investment idea. I'm your host with the fantastic hair, obviously, Michael Wang. And we have three, well, we have two special guests with us here today Jose Torres of LaCoya Capital Management and Andrew Cowan from Brain Asset Management. Welcome, guys. How are you guys doing today? No complaints. Doing great, thanks. Andrew. A uh, b- big Doing day great. in the markets. Hopefully, you made some money. Yeah, it's weird. Uh, I I don't know how much of this got priced in the last week or two. It was, I didn't think anything really happened, but the, the but the macro guys need to do something, right? Yeah, yeah. So exactly. You have your usual like violent gaps intraday both ways. Um, I have a rule of thumb not to really do anything on Fed days and just let everything settle out and then reassess things in the morning, but. Yeah, it, it, quite frankly, it, it seemed like a bit of a groundhog day because every time the markets are rallies into the uh, the Fed, and then it sells off because uh, obviously uh, Powell has been signaling to be very hawkish. Uh, but uh, in any case, I'd love to get into a broader discussion on the macro. But first, you guys want to give a little quick introduction of yourselves? Uh, maybe Jose, why don't you start? Sure. Uh, I'm Jose Torres. I'm the CIO of LaCoya Capital Management. Um, I have been on the buy side for about 15 years covering technology the entire time, worked at a couple uh, larger funds. This is my own vehicle, but I'm a technology-focused investor, so I'm not a generalist, not a macro specialist. I'm a bottoms-up, longer-duration technology research analyst. Um, And like I said, I've been covering technology for pretty much my entire career, so I'll be talking mostly tech, um, and the stuff I pitch is always going to come from tech. So. Um, and, and just so everybody knows, Jose and I have actually known each other for a very long time. We've actually worked together at three separate hedge funds, um, SAC Capital, Turbion, and Cyprus, actually. So, right. And Jose is one of the best tech investors out there. Andrew, why don't you uh, give a little background of yourself? Uh, Andrew Cowan from uh, I'm a Portfolio Manager at uh, Breen Asset Management. I've been on the buy side since uh, 2005. Um, uh, sort of a generalist and uh, capital structure agnostic. Um, most of the team at Breen um, has at least some sort of high yield slash uh, background. 
Um, so uh, our focus is on investments that are, are fairly heavily uh, asset or cash flow oriented. Um, very so very little technology, Jose. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, so and we're all sort of generalists. Uh, so if it basically has a, an asset we can get our arms around valuation wise, or cash flow we can get our arms around, um, we will um, we'll generally try to f- get reasonably intelligent about the industry and uh, try to play it uh, long or short. Well, it's funny though. Well, I'm sure we'll get into it, but you probably have seen that Toma Bravo buyouts. Ironically, over the last year tech lever well buyouts with with certain amounts of leverage have gotten very very popular i think the the data i saw net of Toma bravo buying koopa a couple of days ago was i think this year which is even not even over yet uh, although close has the most tech buyouts in a calendar year in at least the last few uh, which is sort of interesting given what's happened this, this, year? this year yes That's interesting. i think it's i think it's 11 or 12 something like that net of koopa um, so I, I'm not sure if the, the stat, I saw it in passing earlier in the week, so I'm not sure if it was an aggregate deal value or number of deals. Um, and I, there's obviously a difference there, of course, but it's been a very, very big year for tech buyouts, despite the messiness in the tape year today, which I'm, I mean, we may get into at some point. It's a pretty interesting situation going on there. But all of a sudden. Yeah. And we, um, we've, we've, we've definitely taken a look at a lot of those, uh, of financing for a lot of those deals. Oh, interesting. They're, okay. That'd be, that'd be, that'd be really curious to get, I'd be really curious to get yeah. your take on some of that stuff. Interesting. Sure. Well, before you get into idea pitches, you know, that, let's talk about the markets, talk about the macro a little bit. Lots of cross currents here. So let me set the stage. Obviously, we saw what the Fed did today and Powell expressing his hawkishness by pushing his continuing restrictive policy agenda. Uh, market is off to lows, but the S&P is still down 16% or so. NASDAQ down almost 30%. Goods inflation is falling like a rock. So, um, you know, services still still fairly high. In any case, I think we could all agree that we'll well past peak inflation. Now we're approaching interest rates to lows not seen before the GFC, TBD on the full impact of these rate increases. Uh, but it um, seems like pundits out there in the markets have moved on from inflation as the primary boogeyman uh, of the markets to now earnings, highlighting that earnings estimates next year are still too high. Right. Uh, un- unemployment rates still very high. Wages still uh, unemployment rates still very low. Uh, wages still uh, quite high. And quite frankly, consumers seem to have held in relatively well despite all the rate increases. There is still a war going on in Ukraine, um, despite the fact that the news flow has been, you know, quite quite slow um, uh, in that department recently. And last but not least, unsurprisingly, hedge fund risk exposures are still uh, quite low. So people aren't buying this rally, it seems like. So how are you guys navigating the markets currently? And uh, what are your thoughts on the markets heading into 23? I'll start with Jose. So um, the mental model I've been using for a little while, um, and, and Michael and I may have probably chatted about this once or twice, but the big picture of the mental model that, 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 that I'm using is everything is a semiconductor. And the reason I'm using that is because obviously it's not meant literally, um, but amongst the areas that I cover in technology, and I do cover all of global technology, all of the major verticals, everything from enterprise software to things completely different, such as semiconductors or semi-cap equipment. And semis are obviously either the only or the most cyclical of all the primary verticals in technology, right? To the extent you want to consider technology globally, 
I don't know, enterprise software, enterprise hardware, communications equipment, semis, maybe internet and business services, something like that. Semis is by far the most cyclical group um, um, in global technology. Um, and uh, like any other cyclical, um, they tend to anticipate earnings cuts to the space pretty dramatically in front of the actual cuts, right? Um, so to give you some perspective, the SOX, which is one of the major semiconductor indices, was down almost 50% year to date through mid-October. I think it was down something like 47, 48%, but we'll call it 50. Um, that's pretty material. That ranks basically X.com bubble at the largest SOX drawdown um, pretty much ever or close to it within a few hundred bips. Um, and the short version is, is that can't really happen um, in the absence of cuts, you know, eventually flowing through the space, right? Um, indices can can oscillate, you know, a couple hundred basis points or several hundred basis points on all sorts of macro gyrations or events, uh, but the SOX can't drop 50 um, on vapor, right? That is signaling, obviously, cuts that are coming to the group. And there have been effectively no exceptions to that example over the history of the SOX, particularly when you're approaching magnitudes above 25. So down 50 is a pretty big move, to say the least. Um, and the bulk of that move actually happened, as you might expect, in the absence of any real SOX level earnings cuts. There were a few names in the China smartphone space that began to see, began to see some initial cuts in the sort of late spring, early summer. And debatably, um, you know, some of the early cyclical cyclicals and semis like Micron began to see earnings revisions go negative in sort of June, July. But, you know, north of two thirds of that, call it 50% drawdown happened literally in advance of, of any index level cuts. Um, now, since then, there have been several, and we can maybe talk through a few of those. But the big picture point is, is that um, at a 50% drawdown on the stocks, the stocks is already discounting earnings cuts um, for the group at, it turns out, roughly cross-cycle, approaching 50%. That can be higher for something like Micron, that is a very high beta P&L. It's very commodity price driven. It can be lower for some of the analog names, for example, that tend to have a lower drama, lower beta PL, right? But in general, at least through October, the group had discounted earnings cuts for the index of, you know, call it 40 to 50% would be a good rule of thumb. It could ultimately be a little higher, a little lower. The stocks is up uh, from those October levels, but my view is, is that a lot of damage has already been discounted in both the stocks. Um, and the stocks being early cycle, to some extent, a lot of tech in general. So I'm fairly cautiously optimistic that a lot of the market headwinds this year um, are in the process of at least second derivative getting less bad. Um, and by definition, we'll have to get less bad before they actually get better. Um, so while I know people are, for example, very concerned about earnings cuts at the index level, per se the S&P, and I'm, I'm not a macro investor, I'm not going to call indices or markets, big picture, if I use the SOX as a proxy for the early cycle and early cycle sector, the group's already discounting pretty material cuts. In fact, semiconductor investors um, who are bullish are actively rooting for semiconductor companies to reduce earnings and sort of de-risk numbers and or um, get to the trough or troughing earnings power as soon as possible. Um, that sort of began with Q3, Q3 earnings. So for Q3 earnings in September uh, or September quarter earnings that happened in October, I mentioned the, the SOX bottom at least year to date in October and into November, virtually all of the earnings cuts that happened were rewarded with actually positive moves in the stocks to some extent, or at least the stocks didn't really go down. 
So big picture, we're cautiously optimistic that a lot of these sort of headwinds are second to getting less bad. Uh, by definition, a trough um, happens. Um, the troughing process requires a second derivative improvement in things getting bad to getting less bad to getting benign to getting stable before a turn can happen, right? So I'm less fixated on when will things get better, when will earnings go up, and it's more rated change on the declines um, slowing, if that kind of yeah. makes sense. Yeah, it makes absolute sense. And as we know, the market is forward looking. You know, I always have a sort of mental model of the market is baking in the economy you know, let's call it nine months from today or sure. six to nine months from today. And, um, you know, by the time that numbers are starting to go up again, the market's already up 10% at that point or 15%. Which is universally true for semis anyways. Everyone kind yeah. of understands. I mean, in semis, semis is a cyclical space again. Semis investors understand that dynamic, right? You know, um, you don't have to buy any any stock. Right? Semis, you could just say, hey, I'm going to wait for numbers to go up. But the reality is the stocks will be up meaningfully off the lows. Um, yep. you know, it, it's never as easy as, well, okay, I'll just wait for things to get better in semis and then I'll buy them. I mean, again, you can do that, but the group will be up meaningfully, whatever that happens. I don't know when that's going to happen. I just know that the group is discounting, you know, pretty material cuts. I mean, to use a, an example here, I mentioned Micron, I've mentioned it once or twice in the past, but Micron's earnings for fiscal, for the out fiscal year, fiscal 23 have gone from basically, um, 1250 to zero, right? They're actually modestly negative now, <laughs> negative 10 cents, right? But we'll call it zero. They've gone from 12 um, to zero. Um, so that's obviously, you know, minus 100%. It's actually more than that because they're actually modestly negative, but we'll call it minus 100%. And, you know, the stock's basically gone nowhere since, um, you know, June. So, I mean, literally the stock was at, I'm just double checking this in Bloomberg, was sort of in the mid 60s. In early June, so almost exactly six months, the E has literally gone from 1240 to zero, and the stock is basically flat to down small from those levels. So, as yep. an extreme example, Micron famously has one of the highest beta income statements in the space. You know, again, earnings have gone on effectively 100%, and the stock is down, you know, I don't know, 10 to 12% from those early to mid June levels. Um, right. I.e., right. the stock has clearly been discounting for a long time material you know, earnings revisions and material earnings revisions at that. So yep. I kind of have that mental model for um, are things good for Micron right now or memory? No, they're pretty bad actually. Uh, but a lo enormous damage has been done and is largely dialed into stock to some extent. Right. So. so you think we're close to that second derivative improving? Yeah, I do. I do. Um, okay. I mean, Micron, I mean, again, I'm, I'm using Micron as, as an extreme example here, just because it has this notorious volatility of earnings. Um, but Micron's a little tricky and there's always, a, look, there's always a tops down and bottoms up dynamic here. The bottoms up dynamic is specifically in the case of memory and Micron. Um, Samsung is not really playing nice for now on this down cycle. They have not signaled any intention of reducing CapEx. So there may be an idiosyncratic memory element to what happens to Micron over the next maybe three to six months that isn't specifically macro. It's more, does Samsung reduce CapEx or do they not? Uh, they're a bit of a black box in terms of knowing what they're going to do. They have said publicly they're not going to, which is obviously not good news for the other memory vendors because everyone else in memory is reducing CapEx, Micron in particular, um, pretty dramatically so. But um, almost by definition, the rate of change in Micron's earnings revisions just mathematically has to get less bad from here. Again, the E has gone from 12 to zero. So right. it 
probably is not going to go to minus $12. Um, so just by definition, the second derivative has to improve from here. Um, um, and again, that's, pro that's probably more of a semis comment. Like I said, Micron's got some idiosyncratic dynamics with, with Samsung, but big picture, I think that mental model for the space broadly applies. Andrew, what's your, what's your views? Bullish, bearish, cautiously optimistic? Um, I think it's hard to get super excited about equities writ large, uh, you know, the S&P, I guess, if you want to use that as a broad measure for the equity market, um, you know, at 4,000. Um, you know, if you, we'll, we'll see where the S&P earnings shake out this year, but I don't know, I think, what, what, what do you, what's consensus? 230, something like that? Sounds about um, right. Yeah, 230, and, 240. Yep. Yeah. Uh, and you know, it's all up in the map estimates for next year, but let's say they're likely to be down to somewhere 200 to 220, something like that. I mean, we'll see where things shake out. But, um, you know, even at that sort of the 220 level, you're at 18 times. So at 4,000. Um, typically the equity market's not trading at 18 times and a down into a down earnings year. Um, I am, I'm not in a camp that, um, you know, I think the fed and I think I told you, I mean, that they're, they're, they're obviously not going to raise rates forever. Um, obviously the, the step down and the rate of increase had to happen mathematically. They couldn't raise 75 basis points. Um, the fact that we had four in a row is actually unprecedented. Um, so, but, you know, if we get to that 5% uh, Fed rate, um, you know, the, the, the rate curve, the inversion of the twos tens and the twos thirties is obviously telling, is telling you that there's going to be a decent recession next year. Um, so is, you know, 18 times the best case S&P earnings story, the right multiple in that environment? hard to get super excited and say that there's mm -hmm. a huge amount of value broadly speaking um and um you know when you start seeing companies tech companies particularly laying off who have been big hirers um of late um laying off um employees in, in fairly large numbers i tell you that they they don't think their uh, revenue numbers are going to be great at least um you know, some of those some of those tech names are um, certainly lower valuation and, and than they have been for a long time. And um, I think you can argue that, you know, maybe they are in some sort of a value, um, value valuation, value investing valuation. Um, but, you know, that 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 transition from growth investor base to value investor base is messy. And it's not something that. Uh, you know, happens happens quickly or smoothly, and it can take a while for that to really shake out. Um, we, like I said, we we're across the uh, the the, the uh, capital structure spectrum, so you know we keep a very close eye on you know, high yield and investment grade credits both here and in Europe. Um, and you know, I I I, I still think there are uh, there. Are, there are a lot of pockets of really interesting risk opportunity in credit um, that we haven't seen in you know years. I mean, they're not as good as they were when you know uh, credit U.S. credit high yield credit spreads were out over you know well over 500. They're back at 450. But 
um, you know, you can still get, I think, you know, a, a good overall relative return and, and certainly a, a very interesting absolute return in credit markets, um, you know, particularly versus the equity markets. You know, if you start saying that the equity markets are trading at, you know, let's say five to five and a half percent earnings yield, something like that, if we're at 20 to 22 percent, something like that, uh, 22x uh, numbers, um, or, I'm sorry, 20 or 18x earnings numbers translate into a five to five and a half percent um, earnings yield that all in credit yields at of, you know, seven to 10 percent are really competitive um, with, you know, much more, I think, forecastable and acceptable downsides with much less volatility. So um, that's generally our broad, my broad view. Can I ask you a random fix income question? Sure. Um, it's a little related to this. What do you do? You think the um, high yield uh, market is reopening, or how would you consider? I mean, obviously, it was closed for the whole summer. Yeah. And the reason I bring this up is it it's, it's kind of circular, right? Um, you know, obviously, Powell has been talking about you know the the environment being restrictive, wanting to keep it restrictive, and um, you know, I remember I think it was S and P Global CEO was talking about this at a conference, I think in the early fall, so two or three months ago, and he basically was saying the high yield market issuance was worse in the summer than it was in 08, 09, right? Like that's how restrictive and or yeah. closed that market was like effective. And yeah. I saw obviously nothing was happening, right? So zero issuance is, is pretty restrictive. Um, I know November was a little bit better, um, modestly in terms of aggregate issuance. I, I can't speak to, you know, and I saw like anyone, all these, all these, all these hung bridges from LBOs that were announced earlier in the year that are kind of clearing. Yeah. Citrix is one of the big ones that it feels like yeah. it's clearing. And so I'm curious if like as a early indicator of the healing of the, of the credit markets and or capital markets, if the high yield and or fixed income financing environment either troughed from an issuance standpoint in October or without even necessarily calling a trough gets less bad from here. Cause it was pretty draconian. Um, in the late summer, early fall. And that has obviously yeah, these I mean, knock-on effects in terms of crippling LBOs and making financings more difficult and you know, kneecapping MA and all this other stuff that like has obviously been a major headwind to corporate actions the last six months. Does that question make sense? Or I'm, yeah, yeah. I mean it's look, it, it's it's hard to say that uh, to make a general statement on on everything. I think generally uh, but I will say that generally that, you know, higher quality deals are, are, are certainly getting done. Um, and certainly smaller, smaller deals, um, maybe where the issuer is relatively new to the market. Um, so it, it adds a measure of diversification to portfolios. Um, those deals are getting done. Um, you know, they're getting done at, at, at significantly higher overall yields. Sure. And that's a reflection of, the five year being at whatever four, four and a half, somewhere between four, four and a half versus the five year being at one or <laughs> wherever it was for a long time. Right. So you're seeing, you know, you're seeing coupons in the seven to 10% range, sometimes a little bit higher than that 10% range. Um, so, uh, you know, I, there definitely still are some relatively large home financings out there. Um, but, the, I think the, the higher quality deals um, that 
you know, I think investors can uh, get their arms around and feel like the uh, underlying earnings power is not going to get totally destroyed in a recession um, are, are going to get done. Um, and, you know, I've, I've seen a couple of new issuances recently where it was a decent, it was a decent food fight for allocations. Um, mm-hmm. You know, chart industries, it's not rated. Um, it, it had very little leverage before, uh, before this deal, these deals got done. Um, I think it's not rated. Let me just confirm that in Bloomberg. Um, Bloomberg saying it's not rated. Um, no, I'm sorry. So it's single B1. Um, so, you know, that's obviously relatively low, uh, low credit rating, uh, but, you know, single B. Um, that it's going to be a 4X deal, 4X levered coming out. And they're saying they're going to get to 3X within a relatively short period of time. There's a big black backlog in their business. So people can sort of get reasonable comfort level with what earnings are going to look like should be relative. They, Produce uh, a lot of equipment for uh, LNG uh, facilities, um, so you know it's not going to be super economically effective. You know, economically cyclically effective, affected. So um, you know that was uh, that was it was tough to get allocations on that deal. Uh, it was mm-hmm. like something like five or six times oversubscribed. So when you start seeing those types of deals, you start saying that there, there's appetite for risk in the, in the high yield credit market. Um, what I think a lot of people are starting to talk about now. Um, and you're seeing, and you're already seeing it in the shares of uh, the BDCs is uh, the private credit market, which has grown a lot um, over the past couple of years. Um, and you know, I, I, there are some really great, great credit investors who run BDCs, um, who are exceptionally talented underwriters. And then there are other uh, investors who. Um, maybe reach for yield and, mm. you know, put themselves into either subordinated paper or in stuff that is a little more cyclical than they would like right now. And, you know, in situations that leverage can climb from three to four X range to the four to the six to seven X range relatively quickly. Um, and I, I think there's a, there's a decent amount of concern in the general market for what is what the, What's going on in the private credit market, um, and uh, we'll we'll see where that where that uh, ball lands over the next uh, couple of months. Um, By the way, the, you can these see are it in the, you can see it in the shares of the BDCs. I mean, they're all trading. A lot yeah. of them are trading at discounts to book value. Yeah. Uh, and by the way, these are the things to uh, focus on. Uh, you know, second derivative changes. So. Slight improvement, it looks like, in high yield from and just a few months ago. You, you'll notice right? all my questions, um, and and that this is my fixation in life right now, is this sort of like, I, I know there's a, very few pockets of, of, at least certainly my world, where things are amazing. It's a tough year for the, for the group and for technology and yeah. for growth in particular, and where are things getting less bad? So you'll, you'll notice a lot of my questions and, and probings are around this sort of less bad second derivative. Uh, improvement area. Yeah, in, in the markets, there's actually no such thing as good or bad. It's better or worse than expectations, right? Really. And, so the um, the impetus for the question to Andrew was, um, and I touched on it earlier, is is that to use a, a group like Enterprise Software that's had a, obviously a very challenged year, 
IGV, I'm not even sure where it is now, but it, you know, at its peak was down something like 40 year to date or whatever, you know, a month or two ago or something like that. Uh, I'm rounding here, double check the number, but a very, very difficult year. Um, um, the group uh, about a, m a month ago or so basically got to around five times forward EV to revenue. Um, and for all the ills of that metric, which are its own conversation, um, certainly on a historical basis, the data goes back, obviously, you know, a couple of decades and, you know, effectively had breached below the 10 year trailing average pre COVID. So if you just strip out COVID, pretend it never happened, we know there was obviously multiple inflation during that. And I think certain investors are looking at a lot of technology as a, you know, baselining things versus, you know, pre COVID levels, i.e., you know, just take it out of the data set because it was too elevated um, and compare it to pre COVID. You know, enterprise software, for example, as, a, as an entire vertical is now trading on forward sales. Um, basically modestly below its 10-year pre-COVID average, which is like kind of five and a half plus or minus. What um, is it trough at? Or uh, well, um, at? I have to double check. I, I want to say, um, I have to double check that. I could probably fish around. Um, uh, give me a minute here. A second here. Yeah, it's all right. Um, I mean, listen, yeah. you can see what some of these uh, software companies have done. Um, and uh, no, no wonder folks like, Toma Bravo Investor coming in and um, right. So off the top of my head, it looks like this data set I'm looking at only goes back to 2012. Um, but eyeballing trough to 2012, um, looks like the low is about four ish, mm -hmm. right? Okay, you've been in the business a long time. I have since right? okay, yeah, 2006. Shouldn't we be looking at at at, at multiples of of things going back to you know, 2000 to get a really a much more fair version of where things can go. I mean, it's, it's kind of tricky. I mean, things market since 2012 has basically been extremely low interest rate environment, uh, extremely stimulative and, you know, relatively rosy. <laughs> right? Yeah. I mean, yes. I mean, uh, the reason I brought, I brought up um, private equity and where I was going with this, I'll, 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 I'll discuss what I was going to discuss, then I, I will come back to your question because I think it's a, a fair and a good one. Um, where I was going was that, um, um, so if, if the group over, we'll say the last 10 years, we can go back further and I could I could maybe follow up with the data on that. Um, but we start with back to 2012 and the group trough is sort of like in the fours. Um, and EV to revenue to be crystal clear is not a perfect metric. There are, you know, obviously in the end, software gets, gets valued on free cash flow, um, certainly in the case of private equity buyouts. But um, you also have the to point, differentiate between maintenance revenue and new new sign, you know, and new signings, right? So I'm sorry, like a trough. You also have to differentiate between maintenance revenue and you know, like new, like multiple new, over ARR versus uh, sort of. I mean, ARR is ideal; it's just not every company gives it, right? Most modern SaaS businesses do not have bifurcated revenue between new licenses, maintenance, because um, it's all. Um, you know, the old on-prem days was you sold a license, obviously, and then you paid annual maintenance. Um, and so those were those were discrete revenue streams. Uh, modern yeah. SaaS is not as quite that simple um, and tends to gravitate towards the maintenance is built into the license. You, you're just paying monthly by, say, seats okay. or by some sort of consumption metric, for example. So the architecture of software has shifted over time where, yes, old school on-prem software had so much so that it was literally on the P&L. You would that the income statement every quarter would have sort of license and maintenance as the two revenue streams that would sum to revenue. 
that isn't quite the case with more modern SaaS applications because it's priced, you know, to keep it simple um, without using some of the more elaborate situations per user per month, for example, right? Um, just all in and that's the price. Um, Got it. You know, maybe you negotiate a discount for a volume sale or maybe you hire Accenture to do some um, you know, digital transformation work to weave that application to other stuff you already bought, but the core check you're cutting to say ServiceNow or CRM is a simple per user per month that is not bifurcated into which, which by the way, just to frame um, you know, Andrew's point of view, going back to 2000, going back 10 years to 2012, like you said, lots of liquidity pumped in the system, right? Yep. Very low interest rates. And so uh, have multiple has been abnormally high because of that. Your retort could be, hey, well, software in the last 10 years is very different than software from 15 and 20 years ago, you know, structurally different because sure. before, like you said, it was boom bust, right? You pay for your Microsoft office once every four years or three years, you know, you sort of do that upgrade. Uh, and now they're just structurally better businesses because you have more visibility into that revenue stream. But I, I think you. it's fair. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I, ironically, there was a, there's a reason I, I specifically didn't say that. And it's not wrong. It's actually correct. But I think that um, how much of a better model software is today, for example, and I don't want to make the whole podcast about software. It's its own conversation. Um, always, there's a gray area where it's objective and subjective, right? I happen to actually believe that and happen to agree with what you said, that software is much more recurring um, and or much stickier than it used to be. Um, and that's why, for example, you've seen this effectively 10-year bonanza in software buyouts, aided obviously, as Andrew said, by very low interest rates and easy access to credit. Um, but I don't think it's coincidence that that vertical specifically saw a lot of this sort of incremental growth and or success in, in buyouts. It's largely fixated on soft, enterprise software. Um, and, and so I, I, I do actually think the model's better, but that's not the reason I'm actually saying um, but I think I understand that there's sort of shades of gray there. There's some sub, some subjectivity there. I'm sorry, you were saying something, Andrew. Go ahead. Yeah, I was wondering. I, and look, I, I think that's a super fair point. Um, and I recognize it. I'm, I'm just wondering. Ha, you software is sold as a subscription now, and it's sold by a number of seats. I get it. Um, but as these companies are laying off employees. Have we seen a period over the past 10 years where the number of seats has declined because employment at a lot of the customers has declined? Uh, I don't, off the top of my head, I don't think so. Um, a couple things I would say. So um, there is, so I, I, we, I oversimplify a little bit. Some of the more, even more modern, I would say sort of SaaS 1.0, which would probably be sort of the Salesforce. The world Salesforce, I think, launched 99 off the top of my head, plus or minus a year or so, and some of the older SaaS businesses. So sort of call it 2000 and 2010, those SaaS businesses, sort of SaaS 1.0, standard seat-based you know, model, right? I sell you um, 10 users per month at $20 per month, and you just pay me um, you know, that product every month indefinitely until you cancel the service. And hopefully I actually upsell you more products and more seats over time or something like that, right? It's changed a little bit. So for example, now there are more consumption models, right? AWS, to use an extreme example, business that has tens of billions of revenue a year, doesn't sell software on the number of seats, that's on effectively consumption, right? So every time yeah. you, so even SaaS or, is sort of a bit of a misnomer because enterprise software is now actually more shifting to slightly more consumptive oriented models. You use what you consume and you build per terabyte of throughput or per gigabyte upload, et cetera, et cetera. So even software 
um, is being a little bit, it's a little bit of a misnomer now because it is shifting to slightly more consumption oriented models. But to your question, um, we haven't. Um, there's a little bit, it's a little bit about my pay grade to call what overall employment does. Um, obviously, you know, it was even interesting to hear Powell, I think it was this week, discuss. Um, I think he got asked about the tech layoff specifically, I think in the press conference after his remarks. And he sort of said that isn't representative of the overall economy. Now, yeah. again, I'm not a macro yeah. investor. Um, I cannot call US unemployment next year. Um, and obviously, it is not the case that 100% of software sales are sold into the technology industry, right? Most of the software conglomerates have pre diversified, you know, end market exposures, geographical and end market. Um, and so, certainly, yes, if you're a startup selling enterprise software seed based into unicorns in San Francisco right now, for example, <laughs> that is probably going to be a tough space, a tough row over the next year or so, to use sort of an extreme um, example. Um, right. And so, you know what? Can we um, uh, just uh, for the sake of time, why don't we move on to our idea pitches and maybe Andrew, do you want to go ahead and start sure. off? Uh, I'll preface this by saying that I'm not a, uh, a financials analyst uh, or expert or uh, <laughs> you know, that I focus all of my time and attention on, uh, on U.S. banks. Um, but there's one bank in particular that's gotten uh, very beaten up over the past um, really month, month, uh, <clears throat> month and a half, two months. Um, with uh, all of the uh, violence that's been going on in the crypto markets, um, and it's uh, Signature Bank. Mm. Um, What's the ticker? Which, I, I thought you were going to pitch Silvergate. No, well, <laughs> I actually think Silvergate. If you if you if you do not believe in that, Signature symbol is SBNY. Um, if you do not believe, that, if you believe that that Silver Silver Signature will get into a lot of trouble because of its crypto exposure, which I don't believe. Uh, then Silvergate's gone. So you might as well just, you know, just be short Silvergate. Got it. Got um, it. But um, so uh, Signature Bank is uh, a New York-based bank. It started in 2001. Uh, the management team that started it is still there. Um, so they're all, they've all been there for 22 years or something like that. Um, they all work with Louis Ranieri. Um, and this is a bank, uh, it's, it's very unusual in that it's uh, it basically has no goodwill, uh, no intangibles. It, it's grown entirely organically. It's done almost you know basically no acquisitions. Um, their uh, you know their loan portfolio is about uh, about twenty five percent multifamily, um, and you know that's about fifteen percent commercial property, um, and the rest is uh, you know a very you know, diversified uh, pool of uh, of lending. Um, it, it's it's one of those companies that uh, they've they've shown remarkable uh, discipline with their lending portfolio. Uh, they've chosen to grow organically. Like I said, uh, they basically they they hire the best lending teams, um, uh, and from a, a lot of their competitors. Um, and those are those are guys who uh, you know are focused on. Either high net worth individuals or uh, or, or small to mid sized companies. Um, so their their deposit. If you look at their deposit base, it's grown very steadily as is book value per share, as is earnings per share. And if I look at banks, um, I generally want to see not just relatively steady 
uh, earnings and, 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 and book value growth. Um, but I, I, I always take a look and say, okay, well, everyone can grow in the good, good economies, um, and good times. How do these guys do in the bad times? And mm. obviously the worst, the Armageddon for banks was the global financial crisis of 809. These guys still made money in 0809. Uh, you know, their earnings declined from, uh, 135 per share in 2008 down to 130 a share in 2009. So relatively small, wow. uh, earnings decline, but they still earned money. Um, this is, uh, you know, they, they, they started a, um, they call it Signet. Uh, it's like a, uh, it's a way for uh, you to basically um, deposit crypto assets. Um, which has been a, a nice uh, deposit base for them because generally non-interest um, earning uh, those deposits. So um, they've grown it to about $23 billion, I believe, out of a total deposit base of about $112 billion. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, they've recently announced, I think about a week ago, that they're going to reduce those deposits um, by about half, they're going to try to get that down uh, by eight to ten billion dollars. Um, why people think that there's a huge amount of, of liability here, I don't really know. Um, of their, I think FTX had like a hundred million dollars worth of deposits at Signature Bank. I mean, it was like 0.1 percent of their deposit base. Mm-hmm. Um, they had no loans out to FTX. Um, and so um, I'm sorry. So the, the FTX connection was they were they had they had I think about a hundred million dollars of deposits from FTX. They had no loans out to FTX. I see. Um, if the entire crypto business goes away, um, the deposits go away, and then the interest earning assets that they have from those deposits go away. Um, I I think. Worst case scenario, they, they lose probably about $4 a share of earnings. Um, last year, they earned uh, $15.03. And in the first nine months of this year, they've earned $16. So you're probably dealing with something like a, uh, you know, a $20 core uh, earnings base maybe gets hit by 3 to $4. So $16, something like that is, is I think, your draconian scenario. Don't forget, uh, the yield curve right now is kind of their friend. Whereas, uh, you know, the earnings picture of, say, 2016, 2017, where the earnings, the, the interest rate curve was definitively not a bank's friend. Um, they earned about $7, seven and a quarter. So if we go back to seven and a quarter at one fifteen a share, you're at 14 times that number. It's not, it's not, not a high valuation. If we say that, uh, you know, they are just going to earn 16, $17 a share, uh, you know, you're at whatever that number is at, at one fifteen, seven and a half times, something like that. If the earnings stay at twenty bucks, which I think potentially they grow to next year, you're at you know you're at six times earnings right now for a company uh, that again has steadily grown for the past twenty two years, made money in the global financial crisis. Um, they have tangible book and book value are basically the same, which is incredibly unusual for a bank. 
Um, you know, you look at a, the way a bank runs in terms of its profitability, not just by its return on average um, capital employed, R ROAC, which for these guys is 17, 18%, but um, by its efficiency ratio. So you take like a normal mid-sized regional bank, like a Regions Financial or a Zion or something like that. And I mean, they're all right around like a 58% efficiency ratio. These guys are 31. Um, and it's incredibly efficiently run. Um, and you know, I just think uh, a bank that's compounding its earnings the way these guys have, you know, having incredibly good return on average capital employed, um, being, you know, the stock was at 350, I think, in January. Um, so that was a, it was a close to three times book value. And look, these guys are really smart. What do they do when their when their stock does a three times book value and they got a crazy multiple from the crypto stuff? They sold equity. They yeah, I was going to ask what 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 happened with just looking at the five year chart on Bloomberg. Obviously, yeah, they the issued equity well. at. Yeah, they, they issued equity last fall and they issued equity again in January because it was trading at a big multiple. So, Smart. you know, down here, do these guys, uh, you know, I think the fear is that if the crypto assets go away and they have to sell the interest rate, uh, interest earning assets they that they bought with those crypto assets, um, or crypto deposits rather, uh, that you know um there are losses in those uh in those assets because it's you know basically mortgage portfolio that interest rates have gone up so that those mortgages have gone down in value um they mark to market that for um for earnings purposes but not for uh, tier one capital purposes so they you know tier one capital would come down from maybe 10.1 to somewhere in the low nines in which case uh, you know, would they have to then issue equity? I mean, that you would basically have to, A, I don't think so. And B, you're saying that all $23 billion of crypto assets are just going to go away overnight. Can I ask a and historical that's, question? That's, yeah. So just, again, I'm just looking at the stock over the last five years in Bloomberg. I, I don't know anything about the story. Um, sure. So pardon the dumb question here, but so the stock basically went parabolic. No, 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 no. So the stock basically went parabolic in 2001, uh, 2021, excuse me, and it obviously is off quite yeah. a bit this year. So did the stock just get correlated to crypto? Yeah, so a lot of people got sort of very excited about the crypto stuff, the crypto I business. I see. Um, and so, like, you know, look, the typical bank trades around, you know, somewhere between, you know, in bad environments, it trades right around book, maybe right. a slight discount to book value. And, in you know a relatively healthy environment, it'll trade up to 1.5, 1.6. You know, uh, so when it was trading at three times book, obviously it was caught up in the crypto nonsense. Sure. What do these guys do? They took advantage of it and they issued equity. I mean, that's right. what you want to see. These guys weren't sitting there like, oh, we got to buy back our stock at this price. No, they had they issued equity. Um, so and. That's what you want to see these guys so, do. So it's at book right now? Is book roughly 100? Uh, yeah, it's, it's a book. Uh, book value right now is uh, 111 a share as of the okay. as of the end of the third quarter. Right, and right. I think I think tangible book value is basically right on top of true book. Mm -hmm. Got it. Okay. So I'm just I'm just eyeballing estimates, and again, I'm I'm not um, I have no knowledge of, sure. of fins bottoms up. And if I just look at say. I don't know. I mean, and I guess I guess it's valued on price to book. But if I just look at just earnings for a second, just to understand the trajectory of the actual business, 
mm-hmm. out year numbers have been coming down quite a bit from say 28 to like 19 bucks. Was that, okay. is that, a, is that, I'm just wondering, is that a proxy for anything else going on with that business that's been slowing or is that something else in their PL? No. I'm just, I, again, I don't know, I don't know how fins work necessarily. No, I'm no, look, I, I think, I think the, you know, look at, um, not putting down anybody, but I think a lot of people got a little way overexcited about crypto in general. Got it. Got it. Okay. <laughs> um, and thought that all of this stuff was going to go to the moon forever. And that, sure. you know, you know, look, I, I think to the extent these guys can, A, I think these guys are going to end up taking, you know, share to the extent there's anything, any share to be taken and the market doesn't go away completely. Um, but uh, let's say they just earn $19. Okay, they're $19. It's six times that. Right, right. For a bank, which, right. you know, has a real, has a good history of, of you know, steadily increasing earnings per share. So uh, quickly, risk reward seems like little downside since it's trading right at book. Uh, one and a half times book would get you to what, 165, 170? range i think that's really fair i i think uh you know and don't forget um book value if the company earns 15 to 20 dollars next year book value is going to go i mean i think the company is probably going to earn somewhere like uh four or five dollars this quarter uh so you should see book value around 115 by the end of the quarter um and then sometime next year book value somewhere north of 130 so if you start getting, uh, you know, 1.5 times book, you're back close to 200. Right. So, uh, you know, I, I like that set, set up where it's sort of one down, four to five up. But they, yeah, is it rational for them to like, I don't know, walk away from the crypto business or ring fence it for investors that we're not doing <laughs> well, it anymore? Ring something where- it. I mean, it's deposits, right? I mean, it's deposits. It's, it, and right. and uh, they, are, they are reducing their exposure. They, they said they're sort of they're reducing the, I don't know exactly how they're going to go about reducing uh, crypto deposits. Um, frankly, I wish these guys were never actually in the crypto business. It's, mm-hmm. it's been, it's funny. I, like I, you see, uh, I, I saw this with a company I was involved in. Uh, I'm still involved in and they were, they, they own a specialty insurance company and it's an absolute crown jewel of the business. And it, you know, tr- specialty insurers trade at like two times book value, something like that. And they had a, a shipping business where they owned ships, uh, uh, bulk bulk ships and, and product ships. And the shipping business is awful, and it normally gets a 0.5 times book value. Mm-hmm. And you know, it was one of those things there. You know, you know, you hammer the CEO and say, "Get out, sell the ships, and just be a specialty right. insurer, right. because right. you're getting you could earn two times, you get a two times at book multiple." Where and you're getting dragged down by this the shipping business, and you know his retort was, well, but we're making a fortune in the shipping business, and you know eventually what they ended up doing is they sold the ships and they got it paid nice premium for it. So I think that sort of the corollary here is they're making a fortune in the crypto business, but it's hurting their multiples. So what do you want to see them do? Right. Right. And you're looking at it just X the crypto business anyways, and it's very yeah. attractive X crypto. So, okay. Right. And uh, well, like I said, I mean, if I would be, I would be, I wouldn't be nearly as comfortable as if they had a, a capital markets business. This is just a community bank. They've grown to, uh, you know, uh, over a hundred billion of deposits. So it's not small. 
and uh, they made money during the global financial crisis. These guys are really good underwriters. Oh, it's a really interesting idea. Uh, thank you for sharing. Again, that's um, uh, Signature Bank, ticker SBNY. Yeah. Jose, why don't we go to yours, your pitch? Sure. So I was talking about semis earlier, um, and so I am actually I am going to pitch something in semis, um, um, and that is microchip. So tickers MCHP uh, microchips a um, you know forty billion dollar diversified analog semiconductor company. Um, you know the one name in that space that most people have probably heard of is Text Instruments. They're much larger, uh, but it's a similar business. So diversified analog semi business. Um, exposure to all the major verticals, auto, industrial, communications, equipment, fairly limited on the consumer side. Um, um, but as opposed to, say, some of the semiconductor vendors um, that you might know of that have a particularly large exposure to, say, a single customer like an Apple or Samsung, they do not have any of those material exposures. So it's pretty diversified. Uh, similar to a Texan, their products go, um, they sell everything from you know, large FPGAs into uh, military uh, airplanes down to two cent widgets in a toaster. Um, but the common denominator tends to be analog as opposed to sort of digital semis. So it skews, quote, low tech. Um, um, but um, so there's a, there's a few companies in this space. Again, most people have heard of Texas Instruments. This is microchip. Most people have not heard of it. Um, I get the, uh, the the name is pretty generic, microchip, but um, <laughs> it's a pretty, pretty amazing company, actually. Um, but um, so microchip, um, so the thesis here is it's a sort of capital return catch up and re-rating story with an option that they raise their long-term margin model. So the history here is um, they were a much smaller company several years ago and, and actually um, arguably more quietly or with less fanfare than say Hoctan and Avago, they also had a similar thesis about a decade ago that semiconductors needed uh, to consolidate pretty dramatically. Uh, the industry was hyper-cyclical, cross-cycle margins weren't particularly good, um, you had a lot of sort of science project R&D running through P&Ls um, for an industry that arguably was going from hyper growth to growth to more normalized industry growth, which now is you know, probably in the mid single digits to be generous, um, but very, very healthy. Um, and so while Avago and Hoctan did sort of an M&A consolidation wave several years ago, largely by buying very, very large companies in particular. Uh, Microchip did it sort of at the lower end of the market, much smaller deals, um, and built themselves up from you know a billion dollars in revenue several years ago to north of eight billion a year in revenue. So it, it was sort of an underscaled vendor that through um, a couple deals, um, several deals, mostly of which that were smaller, and one large one which we'll discuss in a second, decided to basically bulk up so they could have operating scale. Um, relative to some of the analog peers that were doing you know a few times the revenue run rate they were at. Um, as well as bring some sort of operating discipline to the industry that, in their view, wasn't didn't exist when the industry was wasn't consolidated. So um, they sort of finished their um, their M and A program by buying a company called Microsemi, which most people have not heard of. It's been it was taken private or it was acquired by Microchip. Um, I think it was in mid two thousand eight, and it was by far their largest deal of this sort of spree. Um, and what was um, tricky about this one was 2008 um, or 2018. Uh, excuse Goodbye. me, 2018, mid 2018. Okay. So a uh, pretty large deal, like approaching a billion, uh, approaching ten billion dollars. So a very very large deal. So Microchip basically did several smaller ones. Some old companies you may have heard of, like Atmel, and some you know mid sized analog businesses that are no longer around. Microchip bought a bunch of them, but their sort of final acquisition was Microsemi. 
um, in 2018. And again, relative to their market cap, I don't remember off the top of my head, it was a pretty large deal. It was about $10 billion. Um, more importantly, it took their leverage from effectively immaterial leverage to five times leverage, which for them was, was quite high. Um, and so as you might expect, given the lack of history at, le at levering up to do deals and the perceptions around cyclicality of semis, market got you know, a little woozy around the leverage. Um, and so some of the multiple penalty um, to some extent, um, although the deal's now been closed for four years, um, is back to this sort of perception for it, it being a bit of a roll up. And that was sort of literally true, but but several years ago. Again, that deal closed in middle of 2018. So it's been almost four years, north of four years, um, as well as this sort of very, very high leverage uh, that had people very, very uncomfortable with the leverage level for a good kind of year, year and a half, particularly into a down cycle for semis in 2019. Um, after the sort of Trump-China trade war issues in, in mid to late 2018. So they sort of navigated this. Um, um, so the, the multiple got hit and, and what, what probably is a presu presumably a sort of mid to high teens business sort of compressed to sort of low teens PE. Um, and what has changed is, and what's more interesting on the timing of this is that, so if you fast forward four years, um, there's a couple things going on here. Is So their leverage is now down to about 1.8 times. And if you sort of look at, just to leverage quarterly over the last four years, it is literally down to the right. They've been sort of chopping away at it every quarter. I've done no M&A since then. So this perception of it being a roll-up is arguably pretty outdated. It's, it's four plus years old, although we could argue the leverage gave people nervousness um, up until probably the last maybe year or two or so. Now the leverage is effectively at an immaterial level, 1.8. Um, what has changed is, is that you know because of that, um, while they were digesting microsemi, a couple of their very large, well-known analog peers, as the industry also matured, particularly text instruments, ADI, and to some extent NXP, all went to 100% free cash flow return stories. And Microchip could not because of the leverage, right? So text instruments has a stated program of returning 100% free cash flow to investors. ADI is the same. Um, NXP is effectively there as well. Uh, and Microchip kind of couldn't do that because of the associated leverage associated with Microsemi, even though they were religiously chopping it down every single quarter. Um, but there was just this lingering nervousness, um, as well as this sort of, will they do another deal or not, even though they've been very, very clear that they have no intention of doing so. Um, and it's it was this, you know, w when we get to an appropriate leverage level, we'll return cash. And everyone was like, well, we'll wait till you get to the appropriate return level. So it's sort of circular. Uh, what has happened of late is now they're down to about 1.8, 1.85 times. And what has changed in the last few months is the board has basically announced that, uh, or management has announced publicly that they should be within 1.5 times within the next two quarters. It may be as soon as next quarter, but just in the next quarter or two, they're going to go from what's around 60% of free cash flow being returned to investors to actually 100% of free cash flow being returned to investors. There's obviously so they're a structural have to refi the bonds that are coming due in uh, in April, right? So right, so there's June, there's a, correct. So we'll get to that. So there's a wrinkle on what. Um, so they'll be returning 100 percent of free cash flow. The question is is and they've said this publicly. Ironically, funny question you you asked just in the last few weeks. Some of the conferences um, when they get to 1.5 times, the question is um, how do people want the capital returned? Um, do you want it? Then the buyback stock, stocks trading 10 times forward free cash flow. We'll come back to the cycle in a second. Um, do you want them to sort of take out the converts um, or do some um, fixed income repurchases? So there is a little bit of a short-term, arguably tactical, not strategic, but tactical question around how that capital is returned. Um, 
So they have, they've publicly said just in the last few weeks, they are assessing that. But the point is within two quarters, they will be at 1.5 times and they will go to um, 100% uh, free cash flow returns um, in something. The debate is whether they go to it instantaneously or over kind of call it two to four quarters. The answer is probably somewhere in the middle. So it's not like, and they've been clear, it's not like the, the second they hit 1.5 times, they'll just immediately go to 100%. It will probably be semi-gradual, but by semi-gradual, we're talking you know, somewhere between two and four quarters. It's not two to three years or anything like that. So we're on the on the precipice of them going to 100%. Again, all the peers return 100%. Um, so the thesis here is around this re-rating um, that is not going to happen overnight. So for context, microchip historically trades kind of 15 to 16 times forward earnings. Texan ADI being sort of best to breed, 100% free cash flow returners, um, and probably the two biggest companies in the space uh, trade typically around 20 times forward. Um, NXP is sort of in the middle. NXP is bigger than microchip. It's a lower, significantly lower margin model, but also um, trades about 15 and a half times. So the bet here is that. Um, Two things happen. One is, is that in the next two to four quarters, they get to 100% free cash flow return. Um, and so you have this sort of slow re-rating um, towards Texan and ADI's multiples. Does it go to 20 overnight? No, of course not. Does it take four to eight quarters or two to four TBD, depending on the macro and some other exogenous dynamics? But the point is they are going to get to 20 times. They're going to get to 100% free cash flow return pretty soon. The other thing that's a little noteworthy here is, um, ironically, just a year ago, they gave a margin model um, for context, um, considering we were talking about growth companies earlier, Microchip is an extremely profitable business. Um, so you know, it runs in the upper 60s gross margin, high 40s operating margin. Um, just a year ago, gave a new sort of Microchip 3.0 target model that's basically 68% gross margins, 45% operating margins. They are there now. So I mentioned earlier, there's a call option and they have somewhat uh, subtly signaled this publicly. It's, it's, this is not 100% um, confidence interval. It's probably maybe 60, 70%. They're going to raise that margin model um, over the next year. I think my personal subjective view is they're waiting to see how this sort of cycle plays out over the next two to four quarters. We talked about the semi-cycle earlier, We're obviously in a down cycle right now. There's some debate around how much their earnings come down. I would argue the stock is already discounting probably about a 15% cut to next year's earnings number. I think it's in the stock already. So I think there's a little bit of a question of um, how the calendar 23 evolves. Um, but um, relative to Texan, which runs sort of 50% operating margins and ADI at 50% operating margins, Microchip's model again is, in, is at 45 at the midpoint. There's no structural reason Microchip is not a high 40s, maybe even 50% operating margin business. So there's two things going on here. One is the sort of short to medium term is this capital return story is going to ramp up pretty dramatically. The one that's more medium term and I think a little bit more subjective is um, they're going to raise their target operating model at some point. The recent one is only a year old. It only came out, I think it was last October, November. So I'm not underwriting that immediately. Um, but the net of it is you have these sort of two kind of catalysts over the next, I would gu I would guess, probably kind of three to four quarters, plus or minus. Um, stocks trading 10 times forward free cash flow. Again, I mentioned the stock's typically a 15 and a half-ish multiple stock. And so I would argue the stock is already discounting, um, you know, probably a, a, a sort of mid-teens cut to next year's number. Unclear that even happens. We talked about, you know, 
the stocks has come in quite a bit. The whole group is discounting cuts. I think it's in the stock. Um, that's what's sort of holding the multiple back a little bit. So I, I'd say in terms of sort of risk reward, um, you know, looking through counter 23 into 24, uh, I'm kind of at a high teens on sort of an upper sixes, kind of 650 to $7 EPS numbers. So call it 675 at 20. That gets you to sort of 135. That's sort of up 75. Um, downside on uh, 24 is sort of in the $6 range. And a 10 on that is the $60 stock, which is down kind of 20, which is pretty aggressive. So you're kind of closing it's actually in on bottom recently. Correct. Yeah. So um, whether it's coincidence or not, the stock did bottom around 60 bucks, um, yeah. sort of in the fall timeframe, as well as I think it was there in the midsummer timeframe as well. So, um, you know, not crazy for me to think about kind of 60 by 135 is you're sort of down up. So you're sort of talking kind of three and a half to one risk award, um, plus or minus, um, so that's so that's sort of no, the risk reward. Did, did like they I have said, an, sort of, investor day coming up uh, where they may um, update the targets? Or? Not necessarily. Well, they they did theirs last fall. Um, so obviously they're not a company necessarily that say, for example, does them every single year. Okay. Like last year's one was was designed to bring the new operating model out. Um, again, to be crystal clear, they've been public. They're going to take the free cash flow return to one hundred percent. The operating market, the, the the operating model raised is more my personal subjective mm -hmm. thesis because they're basically at their target model right now. Um, there's a little bit of controversy with the stock right now because they have, um, they're seen as an early cycle um, in semis. And we, despite the group having, you know, pulled back pretty meaningfully through October, um, as I mentioned earlier, their earnings have been intact. So they've been continuing to beat and raise. Mm -hmm. um, so there's a little bit of this disconnect where everyone is assuming that, they're either full of it, they're you know stuffing the channel, or or not seeing weakness, or not owning it, um, and that's why they have not lowered so, yet. So they the have yet lowering. to take their canuppance. They have not, yeah. and and that's the only sort of thing that gives me a little pause. Um, I I don't think it's as interesting as as a controversy as people want to make it out to be, because again, mm. like everything in semis, the stock was down meaningfully year to date through October, right? So. Yes, we can argue and quibble around what's the cut to next year. And again, I, my view is the stock is discounting something like a 15 to 17% cut to next year's numbers, um, or um, plus or minus. But um, my view is it's already in the stock. Um, yep. And if anything- Quick question. So you, you, you're saying that it's traded 10 times uh, forward free cash, um, but it looks yep. like it's, it's trailing 12 months generated about 3 billion of free cash or something like that? Yes. And the market uh, caps- well, Hold on. Sorry. I'm just going by uh, op operating cash flow, net of working capital minus capex. Yeah. Free cash flow, the last LTM is about 2.8 billion. Okay, so right, right around there. So, do so you think that they're going to get free cash up to 4 billion? That's right. Right. Are now, they're going to do that well, well, with well, the well, numbers. But well, hold on. So that that that's that's assuming that, that's that's not yeah. So the, the 10 is on uh, I, I should rephrase it. The 10 is on a on a headline number, right? The, the question is, what's the magnitude of the downturn? I think the stock is, is already discounting down 15, right? But mm -hmm. I, I actually, it's a little early to say, it, it's unclear whether or not that's going to be the case. And the reason I say that is because, again, part of the controversy in the stock is for a couple quarters now, they have actually been guiding, and this is arguably the meta debate in semis right now, is um, they have been guiding a few quarters ahead of, of schedule. Uh, which is a bit abnormal for the analog semi vendors and for anyone in semis anyways to guide that far out. So Microchip, for example, over the summer was telling investors on backlog, 
they were covered through March, right? Um, and so they actually were guiding to sequential revenue growth through March as recently as the, as far as far back as the summer, which is kind of wild um, because mm-hmm. very few semi companies even guide two quarters out, much less four. So you know this came up, for example, in the Avago conference call last week, right? Avago said their entire fiscal twenty three or calendar twenty three is already covered, right? Like it's already booked. So there's a little bit of a macro debate right now, which is. You know, do you want to say I don't believe any semi guide for next year? Um, this macro is going to get worse, and so even though the management is telling me they have backlog coverage through say uh, June, uh, March or June, I don't care. I'm just going to cut the number 15, 20 percent um, because the companies, a lot of the companies, aren't telling you that, right? Avago is booked through next year. Microchip is guiding out through March already. NXP in webcasts or web or uh, conference webcast the last few weeks has been talking about their auto business is booked through 23 into 24. So mm-hmm. the reason I'm hesitating on, on I mean, I have, a, I have sort of a scenario on um, no massive incremental downturn. That's the $4 billion number, right? Um, I think the real so numbers- get that through no downturn and margin expansion. Uh, no, flat margins, no margin expansion. That's, that's so basically run running the current margin structure on, Sort of slight sequential revenue growth for the next couple of quarters. Yes. So the incremental Roughly. revenue growth is going to be almost all margin then. Yes. Yes. Okay. Yes. Yes. Got it. Which right. and, and which kind of makes sense. I mean, the business runs it kind of has been running in the you know anywhere between sixty and one hundred percent incrementals for for several quarters now. So okay. yeah. So net net, I guess that that's the thesis, and I think risk award is kind of three and a half to one. Um, like I said, I think risks here are sort of around the cycle, the magnitude of the cycle. It's very difficult with these auto industrial names right now. I mean, you're seeing yeah. unprecedented stuff. I mean, net of the supply chain easing, net of all of the volatility in the market, net of a lot of the macro weakness and PMIs breaking below 50 and things like that. Most of these companies are, are still that have exposure to that space. You're generally seeing specifically auto industrial, you know, backlog coverage well into 23. Um, some investors they don't want to hear it and are automatically fading that and saying, there's no chance you're going to see massive backlog cuts. There's overordering. Others are saying, you know, the backlog coverage is so much above their, their ability to supply that even, you know, 40% of some of these companies talked about demand 40% above supply, even a 20% cut to that still has you 20% above supply. Right. Mm-hmm. So we're in somewhat uncharted territory in the analog space. Um, ironically, analog is typically seen as the space that's early a cycle and would be the first to see macro weakness, which there obviously has been year to date, uh, particularly in Europe and APAC. Um, but it's actually been some of the digital guys, uh, PC vendors, smartphone vendors that have actually seen pretty material cuts year to date, uh, whereas the analog guys, um, a little bit less so. Um, there's also been some other funny things. ADI, for example, talked about... Um, cancellations escalating in the fall two quarters ago. And then in their quarter, a few weeks ago, talked about actually backlog and order stabilization. Um, Mm. So there's some less bad things going on in some areas of analog. Um, Texan lowered pretty meaningfully when they got into Q4 on the Q3 print. So net net, um, I'd say the stock's already discounting a cut to next year's numbers. Um, I would like to see numbers come down just to sort of eliminate that headline risk. Um, even though I think it's mostly in the stock, I think it'd be nice just to sort of get that out of the way. Um, 
because there is this disbelief in the strength of auto and industrial going into 23. Um, and um, I think the risk award is kind of three to one. And you have these sort of one hard catalyst with the cash flow return story. Um, and then this sort of call option on the on the model being taken up, you know, sometime over the next couple of quarters. Great. Well, thank you very much. That's a very interesting idea. Both uh, very interesting pitches today. Really appreciate uh, both of your guys' participation. Hope to have you guys back on as well. Uh, and that concludes our uh, second ideas dinner event.